This is Eli Lake, and on this episode of The Reeducation, the topic is Russiagate. Our guest is Washington Free Beacon journalist Chuck Ross. This week, the trial of a former lawyer for Hillary Clinton's campaign named Michael Sussman began. He is charged by special counsel John Durham with one count of lying to the FBI. A jury has now been selected for the trial of one of Hillary Clinton's former campaign lawyers. Michael Sussman is charged with lying to the FBI during its Trump-Russia investigation. This is the first trial stemming from the investigation led by special counsel John Durham. A single count of lying to the feds is small ball. This is what the Justice Department charges when they can't get their target on a larger conspiracy or a more serious crime. What's more, Sussman's lawyers have vigorously disputed the charge, claiming he didn't lie at all. If this was just a story about a well-connected Democratic lawyer in the crosshairs of another special counsel, then I wouldn't waste your time talking about it. But the Sussman trial is about much more. Durham's court filings have illuminated the origins of the scandal that crippled the first two and a half years of Donald Trump's presidency, Russiagate. The allegation that his campaign colluded with Russia to interfere in the 2016 election. In the run-up to Trump's inauguration, a series of explosive disclosures in the press revealed the FBI had an active investigation into whether that campaign had conspired with Russia's efforts to interfere in the 2016 election. President Trump is lashing out at the FBI as the Russia investigation moves closer to the White House. The president used Twitter to attack the bureau's credibility. He said this weekend that the FBI's reputation is the worst in history. Fired FBI Director James Comey responded with a quote from his own Capitol Hill testimony earlier this year. Comey tweeted this, I want the American people to know this truth. The FBI is honest, the FBI is strong, and the FBI is and will always be independent. These stories made it appear that an apolitical law enforcement agency had learned of a potential crime. The Clinton campaign had, in 2016, approached reporters with stories about the Trump campaign's dealings with Russia, and the candidate herself attacked Trump as a Kremlin puppet. But that is very different than the FBI opening a counterintelligence probe. The Bureau's involvement turned a political food fight into a national security crisis. So when former FBI Director James Comey confirmed in 2017 on the record this investigation, all hell broke loose. But FBI Director Comey did confirm that his agency is looking into whether there was any collusion between Trump campaign associates and the Russians to influence the 2016 presidential election. The committee chairman, Congressman Devin Nunes from Visalia, pushed Comey for more details. Do you have any evidence that any current Trump White House or administration official coordinated with the Russian intelligence services? Not a question I can answer. Now this brings us back to Michael Sussman. Before going into private practice, Sussman was a lawyer for the FBI who specialized in cybercrime. Durham's team says that Sussman in 2016 presented white papers that alleged a suspicious link between Trump Organization servers and those of Russia's Alpha Bank, the country's largest private bank, to James Baker, then the FBI's general counsel. Durham's prosecutor in this case, Britton Shaw, told the jury this week that Sussman, quote, went straight to the FBI general counsel's office, the FBI's top lawyer. He then sat across from that lawyer and lied to him. He told a lie 
that was designed to achieve a political end, a lie that was designed to inject the FBI into a presidential election. And this is why you should care about Durham's investigation. As Shaw in her opening statement said, we are here because the FBI is our institution that should not be used as a political tool for anyone. So let's turn back the clock to the eve of the 2016 election, specifically the night of Halloween. That is when two important stories first appeared in the elite press. The first was from Franklin Four, a journalist with Slate at the time, and a former editor of mine at the New Republic. Four was the first person to break the news of a possible connection between the Trump servers and Alpha Bank. After his story was published, a number of other journalists who cover cyber issues raised objections. Four followed up his story with a thoughtful response to his critics, who said the communication between the servers could have an innocent explanation. But he still stood by his work. Quote, I pursued this story because I was impressed by the emphatic belief of the experts I consulted. My suspicions were raised by the evidence they presented, and I thought I would be remiss if I sat on the data that I believe deserves to be evaluated and understood before we elect the next president. The second piece that came out that Halloween is more interesting. It's by Eric Lichtbau of the New York Times. It goes into some detail about a summers-long investigation by FBI agents trying to determine if there were direct linkages between Donald Trump, those in his political inner circle, or those within his business entities, and the Russian government, Russian oligarchs, or any other kind of Russians who might have, let us say, nefarious intentions when it comes to the United States political process. According to the FBI, in this New York Times story, they found no direct linkages, nothing that created any great suspicion about Russians trying to over, overtly influence Donald Trump or those in his political circle, or any particularly untoward involvements between Trump-owned businesses or business entities and Russian oligarchs or anyone within the Russian government itself. What it did find, the FBI did, is a relationship electronically between some computers in the Trump organization and Alpha Bank, which is a well-known, heavily capitalized and oligarch-friendly bank in Russia. But the FBI concluded that those could be either marketing or spam emails back and forth. They didn't really find anything that would rise to the level of direct either business or other kind of connections between the Trump world and Russia. All this is in the New York Times today. It goes into great detail. Democrats, of course, have been saying, hey, wait a minute, we ought to look more carefully at all this and raise questions about what Trump is or isn't doing with the Russians. Why does he have such an open door policy with Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, et cetera, et cetera. Well, according to this New York Times story, the FBI did look into all of this during the summer months and concluded there was nothing in particular that warranted either criminal investigation or anything that raised particular alarms about Russia's involvement with Trump. What the FBI did conclude, according to the New York Times, Josh, is that Russia's real intent was to disrupt the American political process, undermining American confidence in its own democratic process and thereby reducing its leverage, visibility, and clout in the world. Now that piece infuriated Democrats, and one can see why. James Comey, who was then the FBI director, had announced in late October 
that the Bureau had reopened the investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server because new emails had surfaced on the computer of disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner, who was being investigated for sending dick pics to underage girls he met on the Internet. Weiner was married to Clinton's chief of staff, Huma Abedin. It turned out the emails in question did not add up to much, and the Bureau announced this before the election. Nonetheless, Democrats believed that the FBI's unprecedented decisions to confirm and characterize an investigation for which the Justice Department would not be bringing charges cast a cloud over her campaign in the waning days of the election. Here's Rachel Maddow in 2018, venting her frustration about those Halloween bombshells from two years prior. This clip is long, but it's worth listening to the whole thing. For my money, though, the single most fascinating story in all of this is what has just been reported by veteran investigative journalist Dexter Filkins at The New Yorker. Just before the presidential election on Halloween, October 31st, 2016, uh, Franklin Four published this fascinating and very controversial piece at Slate.com. And honestly, it has been driving me nuts ever since. (laughs) We've talked about this reporting a few other times on the show. Um, You might remember it was about uh, logs of Internet traffic, logs of communication between different computers on the Internet um, that appeared to show frequent and somewhat inexplicable contact all of a sudden during the presidential campaign between a computer server at the Trump Organization and a computer server at a Russian bank, a Russian bank called Alpha Bank. Alpha is the biggest private bank in Russia. They have friendly relations with the Kremlin. You don't get to be big anything in Russia without friendly relations with the Kremlin. Alpha Bank is mentioned in the Christopher Steele dossier that was published to such great controversy, uh, controversy right before the inauguration. Executives from Alpha Bank actually went on to sue BuzzFeed for publishing the dossier because the dossier does mention this Alpha Bank. Just a couple of months ago in August, that lawsuit against BuzzFeed was dismissed in a U.S. court. Uh, for what it's worth, I should tell you that one of the billionaire founders of Alpha Bank has a daughter. Not that long ago, his daughter married Alex Vanderswan. <laughs> Crazy, right? One of, the, one of the only people who's gone to jail so far in the Mueller investigation. Probably all just a big dink. But for whatever reason, at the height of the campaign in 2016, a server used by that bank kept making contact with a server at the Trump Organization. When that server was being used for almost nothing else, why was it communicating with a Russian bank. It's a vexing little mystery. Ever since Franklin Four first reported on it for Slate.com two years ago, Halloween night, right before the 2016 election, it has been a very controversial piece of reporting. Well, now Dexter Filkins at The New Yorker has picked that up and run with it. And, you know, even if you have felt like this is one of those confusing stories, one of those sidebar stories about the Russia investigation that seems too technical and you're not sure you get it, Pick up a copy of The New Yorker or go to newyorker.com. Just print out this Dexter Filkins article. Don't read it online. Print it out. Read it on paper. Read it in a quiet moment. One of the blessings here is that Dexter Filkins is a very, very good writer. Uh, And I promise you, even if you have been mystified by this story before, you will be intrigued by it the way that he has written it up. And I'm going to let him tell you the story. But uh, just to prepare you for that conversation... um, Here's, here's a few things that he sort of blew the lid off here with this piece in The New Yorker. Number one, 
turns out that at the same time, Franklin Foer was pursuing this story at the very end of the presidential campaign in 2016. The New York Times had been pursuing it too. Investigative reporter for the Times named Eric Lichtblau had the story and was working on it even before Franklin Foer started working for it on it for Slate. As part of reporting that story, Eric Lichtblau at the Times apparently came to learn that the FBI had an open counterintelligence investigation underway into possible contacts between people associated with then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russia. Oh, which means before the election, the New York Times was in possession of the story that there was an open FBI counterintelligence investigation into Trump and Russia before the election. Did I mention that they knew this before the election? Remember that headline about Donald Trump being the subject of an open FBI counterintelligence investigation about him and his campaign's contacts with Russia right before the election, the one that blew the lid off the election and changed it? No, the New York Times did not run that story, even though they knew that that counterintelligence investigation was underway. New York Times instead ran this rather infamous story, uh, also on October 31st. Uh, which basically said, yeah, you know, the FBI looked into some stuff about Trump. People have been asking questions about Russia and stuff. Turns out it's all fine. There's nothing there. That's the story they ran on October 31st, when the Times knew at that moment through its own reporting that actually an FBI counterintelligence investigation into these contacts had begun and stood open. And they knew that directly because the FBI asked their own reporter, Eric Lichtblau, to hold off on some of what he had to report about this Alpha Bank thing because they were looking into it too and they didn't want it to interfere with their ongoing counterintelligence investigation. It turns out that Lichtblau got it right the first time. We all know that Robert Mueller, the special counsel appointed to investigate Trump-Russia, found no evidence of a Trump-Russia conspiracy. He never charged any Americans for cooperating with Moscow's election interference. But it's actually worse than that. Again, let's return to Sussman. Britton says he worked with an opposition research firm, Fusion GPS, and another client, Rodney Jaffe, a government contractor and computer scientist, to develop the Alpha Bank narrative in the summer of 2016. An FBI special agent, Scott Hellman, testified this week that the white papers that Sussman passed along to Baker, quote, were not supported by the technical data, end of quote. And the methodology was questionable. In other words, the tip from Sussman, presented as a concerned citizen aiding law enforcement, was in reality partisan garbage. This was not the only false lead the Clinton campaign sent to the FBI. There's also the Steele dossier, a series of reports relaying raw intelligence developed with Fusion GPS and paid for by the Clinton campaign through Sussman's law partner, at the time, Mark Elias. For most of 2017, Elias lied to journalists who asked whether it was funded by the Clinton campaign. Just this week, he confirmed that he was the one who initially sought the contract. In a separate prosecution, Dorham is now charging the principal collector of the rumors and innuendo found in that dossier with five counts of lying to the FBI. The Steele dossier played a role in the FBI investigation of the Trump campaign. The Bureau devoted significant resources to try to confirm it and submitted unverified allegations about a Trump campaign advisor, Carter Page, to the Justice Department's secret surveillance court to obtain a warrant to spy on his communications. They got that warrant, and it was renewed three subsequent times. And the FISA order was not requested at the time. 
However, in September 2016, immediately after the Crossfire Hurricane team received reporting from Christopher Steele concerning Page's alleged recent activities with Russian officials, FBI attorneys advised the department that it was ready to move forward with a request to obtain FISA authority to surveil Page. FBI and department officials told us the Steele reporting, quote, pushed the FISA proposal over the line, close quote, in terms of establishing probable cause, and we concluded that the Steele reporting played a central and essential role in the decision to seek a FISA order. FBI leaderships, FBI leaderships supported relying on Steele's reporting to seek a FISA order after being advised of concerns expressed by a department attorney that Steele may have been hired by someone associated with a rival candidate or campaign. You just heard the Justice Department's Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, at the end of 2019. What he is saying here is confirming that the Clinton campaign successfully injected partisan innuendo into an investigation of a U.S. citizen. So what does all of this mean? It gets back to Shaw's opening statement. This investigation is about the efforts of the Democrats when they held power in the executive branch to use the FBI as a political weapon to create a cloud of allegations around Trump's presidency and campaign. That cloud had real consequences. It neutered Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who was forced to recuse himself from any Justice Department investigation into the Trump campaign. It hampered his first 100 days, when presidents typically have the best chance to implement their policies and legislative agenda. And it financially ruined many Trump campaign volunteers and staffers who spent his presidency fighting congressional and federal investigations, not to mention trying to clear their names with the media, who asserted from the beginning that they were traitors. To be sure, there were sleazy criminals in and around Trump. His second campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was in debt to a dangerous Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska. Roger Stone lied about his unsuccessful efforts to get copies of the Democratic emails the Russians hacked in 2016 from WikiLeaks. And Donald Trump himself often contradicted and undermined the assessments of his intelligence community on Russia's efforts to meddle in American politics and elections. At the same time, none of these revelations and charges prove the conspiracy the Clinton campaign peddled to the press and the feds. And to this day, we still don't have adequate explanations for why the FBI was so credulous when it came to misinformation from the Democrats. We may never know. What we do know, thanks to the investigations of Horowitz, Dorham, and congressional Republicans, is that the story we were sold about Trump and Russia was largely concocted by Democratic operatives with the express purpose of getting the FBI to investigate Clinton's opponent. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in an America where partisans can turn the FBI on their political opponents. Fortunately, neither does John Durham. And now we are delighted to have one of my favorite reporters, Chuck Ross of the Washington Free Beacon, who has broken so many stories about Russiagate. So he's a perfect guest today to talk about what we're learning kind of in the slow rollout 
of the Michael Sussman trial. So Chuck, how are you? Thanks so much for coming on the re-education. Hey Eli, thanks for having me on. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. So what do you what are your takeaways? And I'm not, and I want you to zoom out a little bit. What what do you think like what were the, the the bottom line of like what are we learning from what Durham is telling us in these indictments and other court filings? So far, you know, he's he's at this point laying out kind of a getting to the the scheme that the Clinton campaign perpetuated to basically create an October surprise to gin up these allegations of collusion about between Trump and Russia. His uh, current case against Michael Sussman is focused on this October surprise where where the Clinton campaign worked with political operatives, Fusion GPS, former spies, computer researchers to drum up these very murky and mysterious sounding claims of collusion. And he's laying out how this information was fed not only to government officials, but also to global news reporters to get it out to the public before the, you know, he's kind of focused on the pre-election timeframe right now, but also, of course, it carried on after uh, Donald Trump was elected. You know, some of these same operatives continued their work. But at this point, and specifically with the Michael Sussman trial, Durham and his team are going into the details of, you know, the, the discussions between the political operatives, Clinton campaign, And the computer researchers who dug up a specific piece of information that is central to the to the Sussman trial now. Maybe we'll go into that a little bit later. But well, I was going to say one of the things that really stuck out to me in the first days of the trial was in the opening statement of the prosecution, where she says that this is about turning the FBI into a political weapon, and we should never allow that to happen because. There's a difference between Hillary Clinton and the debate stage saying that Trump is a Kremlin puppet. That's the rough and tumble of politics. Digging up dirt on your opponent has been, you know, that's happened since the first elections in the United States. Uh, It's it's that's fine. And the media is going to go with stories that are, you know, and, and, and pursue tips. And all of that is not really that interesting. The interesting part of this is that there was an effort and it was somewhat successful, although I would say that the bomb sort of blew up after he won the election, so it crippled his presidency, to get people, to get the press, to get the media obsessed on an ongoing investigation by the FBI. And you know what I'm saying? That's totally different than I'm independently investigating and this is what I found out. At that point, your standards are only... The FBI has an open investigation, and here's a rumor of what they might be looking into, and we'll find out. And these investigations, as we know, they took more, they took almost three years. And it was a cloud that hung over, you know, ironically, the Trump campaign, just as there was a cloud with the email investigation that hung over the Clinton campaign during, you know, 2016. Yeah. No, I think that's an excellent way to to say it, because it is one thing if Hillary Clinton would have been out as as Clinton and other Democrats were, you know, accusing Trump of these various. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's Trump, Trump uh, and Republicans accused Hillary of having such lax email security that foreign hackers had gotten her, you know, yeah. hold of America state secrets. I mean, that's that's normal. 
Yeah, it's it's fair political game. I mean, you had uh, yeah. Republicans accused saying that Hillary was on her deathbed. You know, I mean, that was not true. I mean, both sides were coming up, throwing anything they could at the other one. And, and we should also say there was an effort by Republicans, very similar to the Fusion GPS stuff, and we know this from the Mueller report, to try to get a hold of the deleted emails from her server and then get those to people in the U.S. intelligence community or the FBI to then try to show that that those emails were deleted, were not innocuous, that they were, in fact, you know, in, in, incriminating or something. Yeah. And that was a huge part of the Mueller report. And this is the thing I have to ask about. All the stuff that Durham is uncovering and Horowitz has uncovered, none of this is mentioned in the Mueller report. The Mueller report now, I'd say, even though he concludes that he couldn't find evidence of the conspiracy, is just, it, it re, it's a it's a one-sided partisan hatchet job in some ways. Yeah, I mean, both... Uh, the Mueller Why didn't he have any of this stuff in there? You know, he, he's claimed it wasn't part of his domain. It's a very, you know, I guess, self-serving claim to make. He, he, he said he had a narrow, very narrow mandate, you know, to focus on specifically what Trump did you know, related to Russia and then also this, you know, whether he obstructed justice and all that. So he, 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 he very, you know, carefully just decided not to look into this stuff. I mean, I, I assume they were aware of. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I out, get but... that he has a narrow mandate. My, yeah. my point is that, yeah, it was, it was broad enough to tell us about Peter Smith and Barbara Ledine and, right. you know, all of that stuff that didn't seem to have anything. It was broad enough to talk about contacts between, you know, people connected to the Trump campaign and, Russian nationals that didn't turn out to have anything to do with any kind of plot he was investigating. Yeah. It just seemed like a double standard. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, and you see a partisan actor like Andrew Weissman, who was his deputy, after this investigation is through, basically, you know, once again, kind of declaring that he wants to elect Democrats. And it makes you, it, it really does, I think, it, it, it saps the legitimacy of the Justice Department and the FBI when this kind of stuff happens. Because, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't consider myself a kind of, you know, extreme conservative or anything like that. But I think you have to ask questions about what we were, what, about, you know, the fairness and objectivity of this particular investigation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, all the things that have come out about the investigation, uh, about what the FBI did and what they also didn't do, uh, right. what they what they knew, what they apparently didn't know. I mean, it reflects very badly on the FBI. But of course, the Sussman trial now, Durham's theory of the case is that the FBI, that these Clinton operatives basically duped the FBI into accepting some of this information about Trump. So there's still not been a full accountability uh, of the FBI's behavior and activities during all this. But I wanted to jump back to something, the point you made a second ago about how, you know, this is this type of political opposition, this political work here is took on a more nefarious tone, I guess, with Clinton, because, as you said, they weaponized it through not just the media, which is a thing, you know, campaigns shop info to reporters all the time. But they specifically, as Durham is laying out, they specifically went to the FBI under false the State Department under false pretenses, and they use they. Use, I mean, it's pretty clever, and they and they mask this all through their through their uh, lawyers, so that protects them through attorney-client privilege. Right. Uh, somehow, somehow, Fusion GPS was was involved in legal advice. Right. Okay. Yeah, sure. they're not large, but you know, it, it's a pretty clever thing that just happened to get blown up. But it's they 
used the fact that they went to the FBI to be able to go to reporters and to others and say, hey, yep. look, the FBI is investigating this stuff. You should re- you should do a story on it. It's it's explosive. If the FBI is looking at it, you know there's some must be something there. So, so the I want to I want to I want to nail something here. So I I do have a lot of blame for the Democrats, but there are two points I want to make. The first is, I think it's time for us who are in the fourth estate, who are journalists, to maybe reassess a kind of standard archetype of a Washington story, which is to say that you've learned that there's a federal investigation that's usually political and you're going to write that this thing happened and, you know, what your sources are telling you that they're learning. My problem is that we now have been burned so many times. I mean, it may be that Congressman Matt Gates is a <laughs> sex trafficker. That might be the case. I don't know. But those allegations, those stories appeared more than a year ago, and the Justice Department hasn't charged him yet. Right. So I have to ask this question. It's like, some, it, you know, it's too, it's so easy for an anonymous Justice Department lawyer or FBI official or somebody in the White House or whoever to just simply kind of get this free political hit and to, as we say, weaponize these institutions without having to go through the burden of presenting that case in a court of law, which would require backing up your claims with evidence, you know, having a judge and a jury evaluate it and counter, you know, and and for the defense to cross-examine, all of which, you know, that happens. But then to just sort of have these anonymous whispers and have them blow up as the biggest things in the world, I'm wondering if, like, there should be sort of a standard now, like, you know, we're not going to run stories that are based on anonymous sources of federal investigations because it's deeply unfair to the target of that investigation, especially if no charges end up being filed, which is the case with almost everyone in Russiagate. Yeah, Carter yeah. Page was never charged with anything. Yeah, You know, I mean, you go through the list, but his reputation was ruined and he had to spend all this money in legal bills. Yeah, I, you, right when you said, when you started saying Matt Gates, that was actually crossing my mind. Yeah. It's pretty funny because that was not that I'm a defender of Matt Gates. No, I'm not either. Here, but but, but I, I was thinking about this case recently. It's like there it was a pretty, you know, the allegations against him are pretty, pretty egregious, you know, if they're true. But then there's been nothing that's come of it in the past year. And it's really dirtied up his name quite a bit. But, but no, I think that the media, you know, we in the media in general spend a lot of time discussing how to handle because of mainly the WikiLeaks releases back in 2016. We spent the last four or five years discussing how we should handle anonymous information that comes, you know, like mom yeah. from heaven, you know, should we report it? Should we put disclaimers on it? All these different things. But very rarely, the, the, you bringing it up is really the first time I've heard of this discussion of, you know, how should journalists handle things like, yeah, tips of investigations into pol- especially people in politics. You know, obviously, if that's being leaked to a reporter, there's a reason. The the, the source has a motive for doing it more often than not. So, I don't know if it's a simple question of j- individual journalists just need to be more careful. With, you know, or, or you know, I don't well, know what here, the solution to that is. Here's but. a rule I think that we could maybe float right now on this podcast. If you're a journalist who wrote an exclusive story about an investigation into somebody, and then you learn that it wasn't true or that your source was lying to you, 
you no longer should have to protect that source's anonymity. You oh, should yeah. burn that source to the ground. I'm, I'm amen on that. I mean, I, I would be all for, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, burn away. A few more things, because we got to wrap up soon, but I just want to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, you mentioned it before, and I think you're right. It's like the theory of Durham's case so far is that, you know, Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS and Peter Fridge and, you know, Rodney Jaffe and Mark Elias and, you know, Sussman were just just con duped the FBI. And, you know, how how were they to know that they were getting all this bad information? I got to say, I have a lot of respect for Dorm. I've done a lot of research into his profile. He is one of the most kind of honest and straight arrow U.S. attorneys we've ever had. And at the same time, I'm worried because, you know, he was the guy who investigated the CIA's torture and other stuff at the beginning of the Obama administration and just kind of like ended up being very institutionalist on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, it's like, I, I, I don't know the law well enough and he's got, he has much more information than you or I do, but the FBI and particularly the, co- the FBI and the leadership under James Comey, they need to be held to account. I mean, how they made a lot of mistakes. They Comey fell hook, line, and sinker for the Steele dossier, which, I mean, I don't know. I guess I expect a lot more from my FBI directors that they're not that yep. credulous, right? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's the one thing. the The case is the case against Sussman now. I mean, it's a very low level charge, honestly. So it's not exactly. He doesn't tell the full story of what happened in Russiagate with the dossier no. and all that. So. I, you know, we keep hearing of a report from Durham, you know, I don't Let's know. wait and see what he has to say. Yeah. I mean, but, but here's the thing that I hope that report, whatever, because a lot of the bad things that happened are not chargeable criminal offenses. Comey, yep. Peter Strzok, McCabe did pretty much everything they did. They, they screwed up in so many ways, but you can't really charge a crime for that. So I hope the report explains all of their, their failures along the way. And also one thing that's really uh, frustrated me throughout all of this is speaking of journalists having a duty to, you know, correct the record, the FBI, Comey, especially, they should have a duty, have a duty to correct their, their, the steps in their investigation. They're all doubling Comey down. Came out. They all, they all yeah. go on lawfare podcasts and talking about how they are persecuted. And by the way, there is a fair point to be made that when Donald Trump attacks Lisa Page or Peter Strzok on Twitter, it creates a kind of effect where they're harassed and they get waves of people who issue death threats. He had to have security and that's terrible. And I criticized Trump for that. He was awful behavior. He, you know, he's a man child and it throws tantrums. And I, I mean, I'm not going to defend that. It was awful. So I have a little, I have some sympathy for Strzok. And my understanding is that at one point in Strzok's career, he was a very effective FBI agent. He was played an important role in uncovering the Russian illegals in the the 2010s. I mean, so it, you know, Again, I I understand that like reputationally, like, you know, but he clearly, you can tell from those texts that he had with Lisa Page and other people there, there were people in the leadership who were just at that point, anti-Trump partisans. And they did, then they, and maybe they didn't know they were doing it, or maybe they did it. Maybe it was deliberate. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? It's hard. You can't get in their heads, but th- we, we had, you know, partisans basically in charge of an investigation into a riot rival political campaign and then the president of the United States and his people. 
Yeah, and, uh, and and actually to dive in a little bit into the details of the trial, the Sussman trial, it came out yesterday, FBI special agent who worked in cyber testified. Yeah. And he talked about how- and Strzok uh, was the one who got the white paper. <laughs> yeah, got, you know, he's on the yeah. cyber division. He realized, he read, you know, saw the Alpha Bank report and realized immediately that it was bogus. The guys on the counterintelligence side, the ones leading the Trump-Russia investigation, wanted to, they wanted to find more. They wanted to dig into- to it further. And so that shows Strzok and his guys were at odds with the cyber, the expert, the subject right. matter experts. So, you know, little things like that show that, that that the FBI wanted to keep this investigation going, despite all evidence to the contrary, that there was there was uh, collusion. So I hope as Durham goes along, I hope he just, I would really love to still learn the timeline of when the FBI realized that it was all bogus and what justification they had to keep the investigation going. Okay. The investigation. Yeah. yeah. One more thing really quick, and then we'll let you go. We should talk about the other side of this, which is that there's been a lot of speculation and reporting on the right about what Russiagate would be and what people would eventually find. And so far, some dogs have not barked. We've seen no evidence yet that Joseph Mitzfield, for example, who was uh, somebody who had approached George Papadopoulos and said the Russians had the dirt on Hillary Clinton, that he was, in fact, working for the FBI. That is something that was reported on the right, and we don't have evidence yet that that's true. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, that's, yeah, or a looming mystery still. Yeah, and we have yet to get anything that really pins any kind of bad behavior on Obama in this regard. Right. So we know that Obama was in a meeting, but we don't really, I mean, I think it's far more likely and we're getting a little bit off the Sussman stuff, but when he was told about incoming national security advisor, Michael Flynn, that I don't think, I would imagine, I, I suspect that James Comey, and I don't know this, but I suspect that Comey did not tell Obama in the Oval Office meeting that their investigators had closed the Flynn investigation for lack of evidence, that they couldn't find anything. And yeah. I think that, it's quite possible that Obama didn't realize that it was pretty much ready to be closed and then only kept it open because of a glitch from the lead case agent. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that these guys are smart enough to probably not bring every detail to Obama's attention for, for various reasons. You know, I, to your point, I, I don't think that I don't see, not seeing evidence of Obama having any sort of leading role in this investigation. I've always felt that was kind of a, a little bit of a distraction from the, really what went on, which was, you know, with Comey at the top kind of leading this investigation. So, no, I mean, there are still, as you said, many different mysteries. And also there are plenty of things that the, the conservative side of this have come up with that have not borne out that, you know. Can you think uh, of any more? The re- on the re-education, we want to tell it straight. You know, we're not, we're, 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 we're going to give everyone their lumps, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think th- there are theories that that like the dossier was hatched well before Crossfire Hurricane started as like, uh, you know, and I forget the exact theory, but that that it was the real long bunch of the investigation, right? Yeah, that's, you know, it wasn't Papadopoulos. It was okay. That's one. yeah, yeah, uh, and and that Clinton operatives completely fabricated. Or Clinton operatives are the one who basically once we basically came up with the dossier and then fed it to Chris Steele. And others to make it to kind of launder it through this 
you know, supposedly. Well, there might be something to that because of Charles Dolan Jr. And now we're getting into the weeds, but I'm saying yeah. there is this guy who, by the way, is a lobbyist for Russia, unregistered lobbyist for Russia, unregistered lobbyist for Russia. Thank you very much, Chuck Ross, for that great piece from a few months back, <laughs> who, you know, was like feeding the main researcher of the dossier a bunch of rumors that he'd heard and th things that he'd read in the newspaper. So there was a connection in some sense to like there were these Democratic operatives weirdly around the generation of it, although they were he got it from other people that he went to school with. And, you know, yeah, all turned out to be garbage. Listen, Chuck Ross, thank you so much. Keep doing the great work that you do. And I just I, I recommend my listeners in this podcast to check out his work. He's always a must read. Thanks again, Chuck. It was great to have you on The Reeducation. Thank you, Eli. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.